Uh, Gene Bajalon, how are you doing today, Gene? I'm doing good, Ben. How are you doing? I'm all right. Um, so yeah, I am. Uh, I am good to uh, to take this uh, wherever you and anybody who, uh, um, you know, anybody who uh, who calls in today uh, for getting calls wants to take it. But I guess as a uh, as a natural uh, as a natural starting point, since I know uh, you uh, share some of my weird fascination with this. In fact, you might have a bit more than I do. Uh, did you uh, do you get a chance to uh, to take a look at my um, at the essay today or the uh, the debate on Wednesday about uh, mega communism? Yeah, I had a look at the essay today, and I, I dipped in to see you and Stefan discussing it. I have I have actually scrupulously avoided watching the debate because, as you well know, Ben, my feelings on debate are quite different. From <laughs> I often think that, uh, and, and you know, I, I, I'm willing to be proven wrong in specific instances. I often think debate uh, often comes down to aesthetics and you know who's good at looking good in a particular situation and i think it's a rare debate in which people the people watching are open to uh, changing their mind there are debates of that kind of course but uh, i think with this one specifically i think there was a crowd of people probably on both sides who were uh, you know came to watch the spectacle uh, of this uh, streamer uh, yeah, and his particular style of uh, streamer debating, sure, uh, and you know wanted to see their avatar online kick some ass out of uh, Ben Burgess because you know you're you're known for your debating. Yeah, I, I think that there's some truth to that, both about this core sort of specific instance and uh, in general, right? Like, I think that the, um, you know, I, I, I guess the one big thing I would push is that I think that this, um, you know, and I did say in the essay, I think there are a couple of respects in which doing this particular debate, um, you know, I think there might be some value to it for reasons we could get into, but I, I do definitely acknowledge that it stretches the limits of, uh, of the kind of case that I've, I've made in places like my first book for the general value of, of, of doing debates um, for a couple of reasons. You know, I think it's kind of an edge case, but, um, but you know, putting aside maybe this one for now, I mean, I think more generally, I, I do think there's some, some truth to that, but I, I, I guess one thing I would point out is that it's it's a truth that applies to um, persuasion in general, right? To, to arguments in general, you know, that if you're, um, you know, if, if all you're doing is uh, exchanging essays in the pages of a journal, right? It's it's still the case that um, that that rhetorical talent counts for a lot. Uh, and, uh, you know, like, like is, is going to have a big impact on a lot of readers, you know, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, look, we're not, uh, we're not argument assessing robots, right? I mean, we're a narrative species, you know, that those things are going to have some impact on us inevitably, I think, right? You know, that like, I, in fact, I think, you know, I mean, you know, you can sort of bemoan that or you can sort of accept it and, and run with it, you know, but, um, but I do think that that's, uh, I do think that that's inevitable, right? You know, and I, and I think there's a sort of, um, 
I think there are some advantages to, um, you know, I think there are some advantages to, uh, to doing, um, writ, you know, written over verbal, uh, exchanges, as you've, you've kind of said before, I think that's like undeniably true, but I, I would also point out that like, um, you know, the advantage of like written over verbal, I actually think is, is narrower for in the specific context of debate than it is in other contexts. So by which I mean, like if you're doing, and I, I just mean that in a really sort of mundane practical way, right? Like in, uh, if you're doing a verbal debate, um, you oftentimes, depending on the nature of the debate, you know, if it's a, if it's a structured thing, you know, with opening statements and all that stuff, you do get a chance to sort of prepare very carefully and, and hone your arguments and, you know, do things like write drafts of the opening statement and all that stuff in advance. Um, so it's like a somewhat narrower gap between that and written exchange. Um, whereas like, the, the, the gap think, between like between like doing a podcast and writing an article is like much bigger. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say there's no utility to debate at all, yeah. but I, I, I have come to see a lot of the uh, streaming debate culture yeah. as somewhat of a degenerated form of of uh, debate in which you mm. have a bunch of guys. I mean, I mean, obviously not in your case, but in general, you have a bunch of guys, and it's usually guys. I'm also not a streamer, and you're not a streamer, exactly. But you have a bunch of people uh, uh, arguing different sides sides of an argument. Sometimes we might agree with one side, or sometimes we might disagree with one side, but generally with a kind of poor comprehension of the topics in which they're uh, debate uh, debating that. You know, uh, it's not about credentials per se or anything like that, but rather you have people debating a vast number of uh, topics and they become the avatar of that de uh, of debate rather than being a proponent of a particular uh, political program or idea or something like uh, something like that. So, you know, yes, I think I think you're right. You know, you, if you have like a formally structured debate with people who have either a knowledge of the t a topic or uh, who have, you know, represent a significant political trend that there may be utility to that. But, you know, I just felt, that, you know, I felt like not that you shouldn't debate uh, people. I mean, after yeah. all, if you are the, if, give them an argument guy, you have to give people an argument. But yeah, um, uh, yeah I just find yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I would also say one other thing I think about the general uh, utility of debate before we sort of move on to kind of the substance of of uh, of the underlying issue here, right? Not necessarily the debate about it, um, which is that um, I think one of you know, like one of the things that just again on a really mundane practical level has struck me for a long time as a particularly useful thing about debate as opposed, you know, and, and like, I think if you put it in its proper category, right? So it's not like debate as opposed to like, you know, door-to-door -door canvassing or, you know, debate as opposed to, you know, organizing a union or workplace. Like, um, but if you put it in its proper context, right, debate as opposed to other forms of, of media engagement, right? Uh, podcasting, articles, you know, all those things. 
Uh, I think all of those obviously have some utility. I, I do a lot of, of all of the above, right? But I, I think that one thing that debate has going for it is that, you know, we live in a time of, um, in, so, in certain respects, an incredibly siloed uh, media culture, right? You know, so it's, um, and, you know, and I, I think, so I think um, doing, Debates is is just realistically one of the only available ways of of sort of getting yourself in front of somebody else's audience, right? So you're not just like a socialist talking to socialists in that example, right? You're a uh, you know socialist talking to uh, a largely you know conservative or libertarian audience, maybe, or or even again, it's a much more marginal thing, which is one of the reasons I regard this as an edge case, you know, for the value of doing this, but. Uh, or even like you're just like a regular socialist uh, who people who are, you know, people who are like into something like what Haas is selling might not just see a lot of, right? You know, they might it might not be a perspective they hear a lot of. And, you know, I think I think people, I think a variety of different people are going to go into debates with a variety of different mindsets. And I think there's quite often, you're right, like maybe usually, uh, probably usually, right? There's a, there is like some component of what you're describing, right? You know, you, you just kind of want to, um, you know, you just kind of want to enjoy, uh, watching, you know, you know, you like, like something people often like, in fact, something that often frustrates me about the way a lot of leftists who do do debates approach it is like what they're really catering to is like people who just kind of want to see the, the guy they hate be told off, uh, that like, um, like the week before I debated Charlie Kirk, there was this, uh, comedian Ben Glebe who, who did, who did so. And, um, and he did it in this way that was like sort of trying to embarrass Kirk in a way that's like going to sort of get people who already hate Charlie Kirk and like Ben Glebe to slow clap. And that always seemed completely pointless to me. Right. Like I think that the, um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, if the goal is to move the needle with, with, with whoever's needle is capable of moving, right. You know, that's not gonna, that's not gonna do it, you know, but, um, but yeah, I mean, look, I agree with a lot of what you say about the way that like streamer culture in particular is a sort of, um, you know, degenerate uh, form of, uh, of of debating. I mean, like there's a reason I've, even when I do something like debating Haas, I mean, I kind of insist on doing it on a neutral platform with timed opening statements and all that stuff, right? <laughs> to, to sort of, uh, to sort of like civilize the format a little bit to, to make it a more useful exercise. Because, uh, because I mean, I think that's just better in, in almost every way. I mean, like I, I actually uh, kind of hate a lot of the way that the streaming stuff works. Uh, so I'm, I'm with you on that. But, um, but yeah, maybe maybe we should move into uh, into the the sort of substance of it, right? The the um, the mega mega communism it, itself, right? And if if anybody, sure. I I did sort of want to um, I did offer, you know. Playfully, but I meant it, right? You know, when I when I originally uh, posted about this and uh, wrote the description, every, everything for people who have uh, different takes on this to to call in and, and share them with us. So, you know, if anybody wants to do that, or even just has a question or anything like that, feel free to feel free to do that now, and we'll take it in a second. But um, but yeah, I think um, like. I remember when I was first, I mentioned this on the, on the stream with Stefan today, right? You know, like I remember when, uh, Haas and, uh, his, uh, his co-thinker, uh, Jackson Hinkle, uh, first kind of devised this phrase, mega communism. I think they got it to like trend for a day or so on Twitter. 
and um, and um, I, I remember talking to to our mutual friend Jason Miles about it, and I was just like, I, I, "It's just my initial reaction to it was like, well, that's just kind of meaningless, right? It's like uh, it's like political." like refrigerator magnet poetry, right? You can sort of move this word next to this word, but I, I don't know what that adds up to. And I've kind of since come to, I don't know if, if a more generous appreciation is the right way to put it, because I, I think it's like absolute horseshit, but like I think that uh, at, least, uh, at least a sense that there's something interesting enough there to be worth arguing about, uh, I think, uh, although I, I can definitely see how somebody would would, uh, would come to different conclusions. So uh so yeah, where where are you with uh, what's what's your do, do you have a do you have a take on uh, on the uh, on the uh, the manga communists or uh, I think for a minute before then some of these people or adjacent people were sort of trying to brand themselves as patriotic socialists, which might have sounded a little bit too close to uh, uh, another historically important uh, term for political ideology, where socialist was the second word, which might be why they switched it out. But uh, do you have any thoughts? Well, I think I think it's interesting that the particular moment that this MAGA communism has come to the fore is in the you know Biden administration. Right. Uh, as we've discussed before, you know the failure of Bernie Sanders in 2020, I mm-hmm. think, disillusioned many people, and you know we are coming into a phase of the left where there is a you know a sense of uh, directionless or directionlessness or confusion or even, you know, you know, people are trying to wrap their heads around uh, what to do next. There was up until 2020, there was the Sanders campaign to look forward to, to mobilize behind, and uh, you know, a kind of a social democratic uh, project, which ultimately has kind of uh, fizzled out to a certain mm-hmm. degree. And we're seeing this in the numbers of, people leaving DSA. So I think you have, like, I think the biggest response will be depoliticization. I think a lot of people will, you know, will just leave politics. But the other responses, and we've seen this historically with the collapse of the new left, is a kind of degeneration into, uh, you know, different forms of sectarianism. And because, you know, there's no more Soviet Union and there's no historical link for these people to those socialist movements, we're getting a similar response in the in the formation of all these strange sectarian uh, uh, groups. Mm-hmm. But it is a kind of degenerated form, you know, first time tragedy, second time in farce. So it's, you know, first time tragedy, or first time farce, and second time meme farce. So we're ending, we're coming into this kind of period of dissolution uh, for the left. And I think MAGA communism just kind of reflects that. I think more specifically, it perhaps reflects something going on within the quote-unquote Marxist-Leninist trend of the left. You know, these guys were very much into, um, you know, uh, taking over the Communist Party USA, Mm -hmm. that big uh, political project. Which is fucking interesting, too, because it's like, for anybody who really knows their um, all the different flavors of marginal political weirdos, um, this is actually sort of an attempt to do to the Communist Party what was successfully done, uh, like a I think like a year or two to the Libertarian Party. 
that there's something called the uh, I think it's like the von the Mises caucus von Mises caucus, yeah, uh, which is um, which is a very um, which is like a sort of weirdly Trump like Trump flavored kind of libertarianism. It's like a very um, it's like a sort of very aggressive about culture war stuff and 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 uh, and very like. Uh, you know, weirdly populisty and, you know, whatever it's, it's, uh, so, so anyway, I, f- I find that really interesting that both the, um, like, and it's like a weird thing to have happen too, right. That to have like a minor party be, uh, be taken over by some sort of rhetorical or ideological spillover from a major party, you know, and, and it sort of seems like the, I don't know, I don't know enough about the internal politics of the CPUSA and to know how successful it is, but it seems like what the, uh, the, uh, the Hazians, are uh, are tried to do is the same thing in the CP. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, when when you look at the broad range of uh, Marxist Leninists, you know, a lot of them, a lot of self-described Marxist Leninists have the same historical touch tones as 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 people like has. You know, they're uh, pro Stalin. You know, you know they they uh, pro DPKR. They are you know they generally have a similar kind of historical narrative or at least one that isn't a million miles away. The Mm -hmm. key difference is I think the mainstream Marxist-Leninists tend to be, uh, I mean, I I hesitate to use the word, but they're kind of woke in the sense Uh that, you know, they're they're, they're often very pro-trans rights. They often um, have a kind of third worldism that elevates uh, minorities and the uh, developing world. Uh, the kind of MAGA communists have a similar thing, but they specifically come down on a kind of cultural conservatism. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we go back to where we first all heard of Has was, uh, or at least when I first heard of him, was his debate with Asatar Bear. <laughs> and Asatar Bear is, a, you know, a convinced Stalinist. But on yeah, but he's like a much more normal Stalinist. Yeah, well, he's culturally liberal. You know, like yeah. the whole cause of the debate was some things that has had apparently said about blue-haired people. So this kind of combines uh, a particular third-worldism to a certain extent, um, but more specifically adopts a, a strong stance of cultural conservatism which again can draw on the third worldist politics because, you know, in many third world societies there, you know, one of the uh, critiques coming from conservative factions in the third world is is a kind of cultural anti-imperialism, which rejects, you know, uh, the rights of various uh, sexual minorities or different lifestyles. So they can draw on a kind of third worldist narrative and it combines it with a kind of, Similar kind of uh, narrative regarding American politics that there is this uh, proletarian, which, despite all the Marxian rhetoric, is ultimately envisaged in cultural terms, uh, which are, you know, like the bare-chested male um, uh, industrial workers. So, you know, if you, I mean, like the notion that a barista isn't, uh, working class seems a bit strange, especially because if you go back to Marx, if my memory serves correctly, he specifically gives the example of a cook 
in, uh, <laughs> in a hotel, uh, you know, uh, a, a, as an element of the uh, of the working class. I think, yeah. uh, I think, if we're generous to the uh, the the has faction, uh, the the MAGA communists. Uh, they are perhaps correct in arguing that, you know, there are more important sections of the working class in terms of their ability. Strategic to, location, whatever, sure. But for example, you know, if it's about producing something, what's the difference between a barista and a truck driver? The truck driver didn't build the truck. Well, if, if anything, the barista is, is engaged in production in a more sort of direct and obvious way than the truck driver. I mean, the, uh, you know, I mean, if you do that, like, sort of very, um, like, orthodox to the point of kind of scholastic and point, missing the point, you know, um, reading of Marx that I think a lot of this comes out of, right? I mean, it's like, okay, well, look, if, if the sort of labor process is all about transforming what you get from nature into human use values, then if you're, you know, if you're, uh, if you're, you know, straining hot water through ground coffee, right, you, you are actually. Uh, doing that, right? Uh, grinding the coffee and straining the water through it and foaming the milk and all that stuff. You are transforming materials that are taken from nature into human use values. Uh, whereas the, the contribution you, you make to that as a truck driver is actually a bit more indirect. You know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's uh, like, yeah, there's obviously no non-aesthetic um, you know, distinction there, right? They, if anything, um, like, yeah, I mean, if, if it's, um, you know, but but I, I do find this interesting. And I guess one of the things I was thinking about when I was, I was listening to what you were saying is that, you know, I think that, you know, okay, so in, um, in the essay, I was kind of trying uh, to, uh, Murphy, please call in, uh, use your voice, I want to hear from you. Um, so if, um, so yeah, I mean, I think if you want to uh, have, yeah, so like in the essay, I was basically doing two things, right? One is sort of rehearsing what I was focused on in the debate itself, which is sort of the, the case against thinking that there's some sort of like meaningful realignment where, you know, you're anti-establishment, you know, uh, if you're like against, you know, like that, it's like the the libs and uh, the libs and the neocons and Dr. Fauci and Zelensky, you know, versus uh, versus the anti-establishment people who are often, you know, right wing, and that's like the that's like the new thing that's replaced left right dichotomies or whatever. And it's like, you know, like pushing back against all that because like the mega communism thing is sort of the most extreme. Like that's a very popular narrative, and I think the mega communism thing is kind of the most extreme manifestations of it. And then the other thing was, you know, the thing that's sort of more appropriate for the philosophy of Substack is like kind of thinking about these more abstract uh, theoretical issues about labor and, you know, what, what the working class means and uh, uh, Marx's ideas about how you go from, from one, you know, how to think about the transition between modes of production and how that kind of relates to, I think, some of what Haas sort of misses or mangles in his reading of Marx. But like on a completely different level from any of that, I think part of what you were saying about the dissolution of the left, which, you know, it's like one of those things. It's like, um, I don't remember who I'm stealing this line from, but there's this nice line about how democracy doesn't really get it. We don't really have democracy, but also you miss it when it's gone. Um, 
it's like the left, you know, is the left dissolved or is dissolving or do we never quite have one in the first place? You know, I think there's some truth to almost any answer you can give on that, but there, there is certainly a, an extent, a degree of dissolution right in the last couple of years, I think undeniably. Um, you know, so it's like, one of the things I was thinking about just on a much more mundane level is like, look, the more that you're sort of the possibility of, of putting points on the board in the real world political struggle is off the table, that even sort of Sandersian social democracy uh, is, you know, has taken some massive hits, you know, in the last, in the last couple of years and, you know, and, and DSA was kind of riding that wave and might now be suffering a bit or whatever, that it's like people retreat to what, what Jason was writing about a while ago for sublation, right? Leftism is a lifestyle brand, you know, that it's like you, the, I mean, this is, I mean, this is kind of my point in the cancel comedians book, you know, that's like the less you're thinking about, uh, radical politics as a realistic project to change the world, right? The more you're just thinking of it as personal expression and the more you're thinking about his personal expression, I mean, a lot of the sort of sectarian stuff you're talking about makes perfect sense that it's like, you're, you're just kind of, you're just kind of curating your individual political consumer preferences. Here's the stuff you like, you know, that the, uh, you know, like, yeah, North Korea seems really based, you know, they're like madly men and, you know, and, and, and they're, they're like, excitingly violent you know but like trump also seems kind of based and uh i don't know starbucks baristas you know kind of seem like queers to you and you know all that stuff right it's like all of that stuff is just kind of yeah it's it's uh it's consumer preferences right you know you're getting away from the idea that politics is about what you do to get what we do together and you're just like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna assemble my little you know communism.com dating profile here all of my likes and dislikes it's a it's a it's a coping mechanism because the reality is very depressing at the end of the day. You know, you can externalize uh your hopes to a foreign country. Uh you can you you can invert the prevailing morality or the prevailing heroes in the mainstream media and turn them into villains and you can just, you know, have like a kind of uh a kind of um view of the world, which, uh, you know, it, it feels radical, right? Yeah. It, it, it feels radical. Uh, and uh, to a certain extent, it, it, it is, you know, like communism is the inevitable outcome of the kind of hegemony of progressive liberalism, at least in left-wing circles, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, pe people want to... Uh, you know, there's a desire to go against the prevailing order and the prevailing moral order is one which is a tone which is set by uh, progressive liberalism. And more broadly, you know, it, it's, a, it's a political discussion that is, you know, defined by the fight between progressive liberalism represented in the Democrats and conservative liberalism uh, <clears throat> Uh, represented by the Republicans. And thus our right. politics on the left, instead of becoming independent from this sort of uh, dichotomy of left-right in the mainstream sense, becomes uh -huh. kind of a, a pale echo of it. So, you know, amongst the Marxist-Leninists, it seems to me that the big fights that they're having really come down to uh, a culture war, and a culture war that mirrors 
that which is taking place on a national level between Republicans and Democrats. So, totally. you know, instead of, uh, you know. Yeah, uh, no, I think, there's, I think there's a lot of truth there. I mean, I think that it's like, uh, I, I mean, look, I mean, when I was sort of critiquing all of the stuff that was bothering me that I was critiquing in, in canceling comedians, right? I mean, it's like a lot of what, you know, a lot of what I was kind of seeing and a lot of what was bugging me was, and this is kind of funny to think about because this is like actually at a time when the American left such as it is was doing a little bit better than it is right now, but uh, was people who would sort of confuse uh, like a left, like a socialist political project, right? A political project about, you know, like a sort of long-term project of trying to organize and empower the, the working class to change society in, you know, ways that line up with, with our, you know, goals of socialists and all that stuff uh, that like people confusing that with the sort of day-to-day, like um, the day-to-day warfare between team red and team blue in the, uh, in the culture war. And thus like, you know, cause it's like, look, if the people that you really hate are conservatives and, you know, fair enough. Right. Uh, then like you sort of whatever conservatives or argue with liberals about, you sort of find a way to, to kind of put your own gloss on or, or support what the, the liberals are saying, which I always thought was asinine. You know, like I think you should, you know, I don't think like I don't think it's good. I think it's always a bad practice to sort of work backwards from the desire to disagree with the people that you hate rather than starting with your own analysis of the world and your own values and, and working forwards, you know, but um but like it's this this is like in a way like I mean this is just very much the flip side of that right because it's like um, it you know it's it's saying well look if the people that you you really hate you know like if you think of yourself as some kind of Marxist or socialist and the people that you really hate are the libs right you know then uh, then like how can I how can I put a Marxist or socialist gloss on owning the libs as thoroughly as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 the that's the fundamental conundrum that that we have. The way I see it <laughs> is, I am sympathetic to the idea that you know the the biggest obstacle to the left is our liberals and the Democratic Party. Yeah. But the way to deal with that is not to tell the Republicans. That's like the fundamental pro- uh, problem, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have. The Democrats are kind of like the mafia, right? Uh, They're like, look, if you don't vote for us, you'll get some, you'll get something worse, right? You'll get the Republicans and they'll just do worse things. Uh, and the kind of impossible calculation that we have is, well, is there a time where we have to really stick it to the Democrats and uh, uh, so that they lose? And what's the risk of that? Because the risk is it's like you can say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter if they lose. And, you know, maybe you'll get kind of a lame Republican administration that doesn't actually get much done because they're all too lazy. But you could you could end up with a a Nazi Germany situation where, um, you know, some the the social fascism argument, which I, you know, like people like to blame the communists for that. But I would always. He's uh, like to remind people that it was a social Democrat who ordered the Freikorps to exterminate uh, uh, socialists That's in Bavaria. Yeah. So I, I, you know, we can, we can blame Stalinism, but there was a, 
it was a very good reason why communists were wary of the social democrats but sure. you know the point was uh, you ended up with a situation where you know uh, the political order was made so that communism was basically obliterated within germany until it was you know reinstalled in a part of the country by the soviet army so you know the i think there is a desire of people on the left to find a way of breaking the Dem Democratic Party. Uh, but I think, you know, very often that just because people can't think beyond that Republican Democrat binary, that ends, the, en ends up with them making common cause with Republicans and putting all kind of putting a kind of uh, uh, a kind of left wing gloss on why we should be uh, why we should we should be not too worried about the right flank of capital and you know also doing like silly apologetics like oh trump wasn't uh, wasn't the war party i mean it's like well you know he brought john bolton in they assassinated qasem Soleimani. they did yeah. all kinds they did all kinds of things the war party uh continues you know um whatever and trump was by no means an anti-imperialist he was just like very naked in a kind of resource extraction version of imperialism. He didn't get the, he, he didn't seem to get the complicated way that uh, U.S. foreign adventures are, uh, you know, are often directed at the American people in a sense. So I think MAGA communism is a kind of low symptom of uh, a kind of uh, desire on some parts of the left to be able to break with the Democratic Party. But what they just do in the end is end up tailing the Republican Party. And as you know, that's the criticism I have of other groups on the left who make similar arguments, albeit in a far more sophisticated uh, uh, way. So, you know, that's that's a... Yeah, that's a yep. that's a kind of conundrum, and we have to face that conundrum. If you know, people say, "Look, the gamble is we're going to keep backing the Democrats because the Republicans are just worse." I think that you know, I think a lot of people are kind of good faith on that. But the risk, of course, for us is is that the left comes to be tarred with the failures of the Democratic Party. Well, actually, I I agree with what. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, there's a there's a sort of question there about. I mean, I think. Um, I guess my two thoughts about this are one, um, I think part of the problem is that everybody, you know, on the left, certainly, although this is not just a problem of the left, if, if anything, I think this is kind of the left just sort of being uh, tainted by some much larger facts about American political culture, but like, um, you know, is, is trained to be so ultra moralistic about this stuff that it's like everything is about everything is always about like who you're rooting for and who you're condemning. And mm -hmm. uh, so it's like the same thing with like people's reaction to, to the war in Ukraine, right. You know, that it's like, you have to have um, it's like any discussion that goes beyond, right. Like um, that goes beyond like a moral approval of one side or moral condemnation of the other that like you're sort of, suggested any policy on any grounds other that don't just reduce to those i think a lot of people just kind of can't compute 
that it's it's um, you know, oh, well, you're saying like a different, you know, Western policy might have a different impact. Oh, so you're saying that it's not really Russia's fault that they did that? It's like, no, I'm not saying that, right? I'm saying this other thing, you know, it's like similarly, I think here with uh, with a lot of the election stuff, right? It's like we get, everybody wants to have a sort of this like very clean moral stance on this stuff. So you end up having this incredibly stupid argument that between like people on the one hand who even leaving MAGA communists out of it, right, you know, even just kind of restricted ourselves to a sater, uh, you know, spectrum of left opinion, uh, people who will either say like, uh, there's literally no difference between Democrats and Republicans, um, and like really insist on that, or people who say, um, the Republicans are going to do fascism, there'll be like death camps. Uh, and, uh, and, and if you don't vote for Democrats, you're, you know, you're pro-fascist or whatever, right? And it's like, it's just like the dumbest terms to conduct this argument on. And I do wonder if there are, um, you know, more mature models that we could emulate from elsewhere, right? I mean, like I think about like the, you know, French socialists and communists who will be like very clear about the fact that like, if it's a Macron-Le Pen runoff that like they, they're like very clear about their hatred of Macron, but they'll still be like, yeah, I mean, whatever. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll still hold our noses and do it. So that's one thought. But then my other thought is like, I remember Michael Brooks said something interesting about this once, which is that it's like, yeah, I can imagine circumstances under which um, it would totally be worth taking that gamble that you're talking about, right? That it's like, yeah, high risk, but high reward, right? That makes sense that, you know, you, you take a high risk, but high reward gamble, but it's like, you know, it's, it's just part of the problems right now. The left is so weak and marginal that it's, it's a little bit tricky to see what the reward looks like anytime soon. I mean, exactly. I mean, it's, it, you know, I'm not pretending that I have any particular solutions to the sure. question, but I, I think there is like this kind of uh, conundrum that we have to like look at in a kind of clear eyed way and be clear about what we're doing. Right. You know, we're not, you know, voting, def voting defensively to uh, keep Trump out of office is not laying the foundations for socialism. It's a defensive maneuver, right? right. If, you know, it's, it, it is a sign of our defeat, not a, not a sign of any strength. And as you say, like, was, the left is so, you know, unimportant, uh, at least in a, you know, in, in a con in, in, at least in electoral politics, but probably, you know, in politics in general, you know, we just don't have a capability to do a Ross Perot and swing uh, an election. And ultimately, the game that the liberals play is a kind of guilt game, right? They play, it's the same game that they play with the Ukraine, which is that they weaponize your empathy uh, in, in order to say, well, you know, if you don't do this, the Republicans will do all these kind of crazy, terrible things. And it becomes like very difficult to, uh, it's, it's, it becomes, uh, you know, very difficult to steer the course when you're faced with, you know, like maybe for most people, it won't make a bunch of a difference, but there are going to be tons of very vulnerable people on the edge who the difference between a Republican and Democratic administration will like really matter. And uh, yeah. to, play yeah. that kind of, to play that kind of hard politics, it takes a kind of almost uh, 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 an ability to crush your empathy. 
if you do it in a self-conscious way. Of course, the alternative way is to just create a fantastical narrative about how everything will be fine. But that's like a lot easier to do than, than, than say, okay, well, this is a high risk, high reward situation and people might get crushed, but it's for the it's for the greater good. That is a kind of inhumane calculation one has to make. Yeah, that's true. Uh, all right, I, I do have a couple of calls, so I want to see if I can ideally take both of them before uh, before we can knock off for the day. Uh, Casey, what's on your mind? Uh, hey, can you hear me? I can. Uh, great. Um, first off, uh, I really enjoyed your debate with Haas. I think you did a great job, um, and I appreciate the article that you wrote today. Um, Something that came up during the debate that's been on my mind a little bit is Marx's definition of the working class workers. Yep. Um, and so uh, something that I maybe didn't get addressed in the article that I want to hear your thoughts on. Sure. Uh, where um, public sector unions and workers kind of come into the picture. I know, like, you know, Marx talks about capital, you know, workers, you know, selling their labor to, labor to capitalists. Um, how does that work with the public sector? Um, I personally feel like we're, you know, it has something to do with the, where, where you're, uh, where you are in the relationship with means of production, but curious to hear both of your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, this is actually kind of an interesting question for me since a couple days ago. I, uh, so I'm, um, I don't. So I still I still work as an adjunct at Rutgers University. Um, like I still teach, uh, you know, I still teach usually one this semester. It's actually two, but it's two sections of the same class. And it's, you know, it, it's obviously not the majority of what I do, right? All this other stuff is the majority of what I do, but it, it is still something that I do. And it's still, a, you, know, uh, you know, left media doesn't pay much, right? So it's still a big part of the income stream. Uh, so, um, Obviously, since I live in, uh, you know, Baja, California, it's online, but I just, but because I do still do that, uh, a few days ago, I think, I don't remember exactly, I actually voted uh, in a strike authorization vote for the, uh, for, for my union at Rutgers. Uh, so I, I might very soon be on strike against the state of New Jersey, right? Rutgers is a public university. Um and I, you know, so I, I would be, uh, I certainly see that as a sort of, you know, as part and parcel of the sort of general class struggle, like anything else, you know, the, uh, um, you know, certainly, you know, like the teachers, teacher strikes in Chicago were very important and valuable and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think there's an interesting question there because, I mean, certainly Marx's analysis of capital is like very overwhelmingly focused on, um, uh, like private for-profit companies, but I think that it's I, I, on the face of it, I think it's reasonable to sort of apply these analytical categories to anybody who's um, you know has no economic uh, realistic economic option except for to sell their labor, their labor power, right? Their their working time to an employer, and you know maybe whether that employer is is uh, public or private sector is beside the point, although. Although also I do want to acknowledge that there are some like big complicated debates here. I don't have, uh, I don't necessarily have super well worked out thoughts about, about like, okay, so does that mean, you know, like was the Soviet Union like some form of statified capitalism, you know, cause, cause there was still, 
there was still, uh, you know, I mean, you still needed a job, right, to, to get by. You were, you know, selling your labor to the state and whatever. So it's a, there are interesting questions there that I don't know that I have, like, super well-developed thoughts about. But, I mean, I think my impulse is the same as yours. All right. Sounds good. Let me just take, uh, maybe even before I go back to Gene, let's just take uh, <laughs> Ikaroa. Uh, so uh, make, just make sure we get in this other call before we go. Can you hear me? We can. Uh, is it like a bad volume? No, nope, it's okay. Good. It's good. Oh, sweet. I'm so glad Colin allows me to be able to talk with my earbuds in. Some, pl- some uh, things I do... When I got the earbuds in, they can't hear. So it's good. I, I'm just realizing that just now, and I've been on calling for a little while. So what's the uh, what? What can we glean from all this? What what is this? What what, what are we trying to go? MAGA communism. What what does that mean? MAGA communism. What's it mean? Uh, yeah. So I, I linked to the uh, description for this. Uh, this, uh, this, you know, the essay that I wrote about it, where obviously uh, I, I go into much more detail and. If you follow the link in there, you can watch. Well, if you follow the links in there, you can either read the guy I'm criticizing, the streamer Haas. You could read his very long essay explaining what he means by it, or you could watch uh, his debate with me about it. But yeah, it's this. It's this sort of weird. Um, you know, it's this. It's this kind of weird and marginal view that uh, there's. Um, you know, like the sort of most minimalistic and plausible sounded version of it is like. Uh, well, communists, right? Uh, which I also think it's a little bit silly to use the C word in 2023. You know, like that always, my grumpy joke about that is always that it's like calling yourself a communist in 2023, uh, you know, decades after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, et cetera, is just kind of a way of saying that you think socialism sounds better on vinyl. But, um, you know, but the communists should, uh, will sort of have better luck, you know, sort of spreading their message among you know what they would call the mega movement because that's like the that's like the anti-establishment <laughs> or counter hegemonic. That that's a it's it's a, such an interesting topic, and I wish that you weren't leaving or whatever. I wish that I didn't have to hurry up and say what I want to say. you know why don't you just say it and we'll do? You know I, I don't want to keep Jane too much longer, but let's let's just do a couple minutes on it right now. What do you, what okay. Are you, what are you thinking? Well, I I'm 36, going on 37 year old male from the states. And, and, you know, I, I got a lot to say on this because I've gone through being a working, uh, dying middle class, working class kind of guy uh, and, and being a poor dude. Um, I feel like also being quite uh, perceptive and uh, amongst amongst the people, amongst me, uh, I've been quite intellectual. Um, but I've, I've, I've tended towards the extreme because of my radicalism. So I've always been radical. And I want to just stress that the radical to me, radical to a lot of people prior to the uh, how they took that word in the mainstream and turn it into something wrong was actually a good thing. Like free radicals or whatever, the band in the 90s, you know, in the 90s, I grew up, I was born in 86 and radicalism back when I was younger was just a normal word that meant like you're radical, you're against the establishment, you're for new ways and then as I got older, I realized the definition means getting to the root cause of what the problem is rather than trying to solve it from trying to treat the symptoms. So the radical to me meant a, like almost a holistic thing uh, across the sociological landscape. 
applied to the sociological landscape. If that makes any sense. Sort of a sort of a, a radical getting to the root of the issues of the of the hierarchy of the usury, uh-huh. um, and and so I I naturally gravitated towards extreme political views because those were typically the ones we're taught to fear, to hate, to vilify, fascism, communism, this stuff. And I just saw so many things that were more similar with them, with those radical or extreme views than, than with the, the norm, with the consumer capitalist idea. And, and so I never stopped being radical. I never stopped being in that way where I, I want there to be, I, I understand things have a, have a source problem. And so um, I understand why a lot of leftists actually would be better off to try to appeal to the conservatives because there's so many more poor amongst them and so many people who who support Trump in, in the independent realm. I'm not one of them. Um, I just see Trump as a troll, but I don't see him as evil or good. So I'm, I'm really, when, with Trump, I just see him as, as sort of like a troll. Um but I'm not Trump or pro-Trump or anti-Trump. I, I haven't been into politics in a long time. But I would say that a lot of people who are into Trump for the good reasons, that they that the left would definitely have a better way of appealing to them than they would with the with the establishment Democrat types that, that are a bit more rich or bourgeois, bourgeoisie, you know, and it has a lot to do with class with that, you know, because because the lower class um you know, Trump appeals to a lot of people with simplistic language that, that don't care about politics or anti-politics or anti-intellectual. So with that, you know, if the if the left were to drop its veneer of like, we're better than you, and were to, were to actually become real populists, which I think Marx would agree, I think that that would actually amount to something better, but you would still need good leaders. You can't have... Mayo or fucking Stalin leading the fucking way, you know? Yeah, I got you. Uh, I'm going to uh, just kind of in the interest of, of making sure I get to everybody. I get to everybody. Uh, I want to uh, I want to grab um, Brady because he called in last time and uh, and and I I actually didn't get to take his call because we were running up to the limit last time. So I, I want to take Brady real quick and then maybe kind of go to Gene and address both calls at the, at the same time and then kind of wrap up. So uh, Brady, what's on your mind? Hilarious article title. And yeah, I think that what's happening is that inevitably the conservative right has run into the situation where they've realized that communism is not a bad idea on its own. Right. And it's just being weaponized uh, to serve the interest of the, you know, the shadow state, whatever you want to call it, our, our vampire overlords. Um, and it's sly, the stuff they're able to get away with, like uh, thinking that Donald Trump is going to arrest all the pedophiles and stuff like that. When he was mentored by Roy Cohn, hired Alan Dershowitz, um, saw the Epstein flight logs, hung out at the Playboy mansion, like the list goes on, you know, but I think that Roy Cohn would actually be a really good linchpin to the 
to his whole presidency. I think if more Donald worshipers knew who Roy Cohn was, it would squander support um, throughout their ranks pretty quickly. Uh, do you want to, uh, before I, uh, you know, before we go back to, to Gene and talk about all that, do you, do you want to tell people a little bit about how Roy, Roy Cohn? Yeah, Roy Cohn was a McCarthyist back in the day. He uh, worked with, I think it was, uh, who was the famous McCarthyist who was also like a, a gay pedophile, I believe, too. Uh, uh, I could be wrong on that one, but it was uh, McCarthy, John McCarthy. <laughs> I think he worked with him um, during that whole era to Joe, Joe McCarthy. Russia. And um, uh, yeah, and turns out that Roy Cohn was a super creepy dude who was also abusing young people, you know, same old story, tale as old as time. And he was Donald Trump's mentor um, growing up, very connected to not only Donald Trump, but his entire network. And that includes Jeffrey Epstein, you know, Goldman Sachs, all this kind of stuff, all the financial aspects, um, you know, and it's an interesting character in Donald Trump's life that not a lot of Donald supporters even know about. Another thing they don't know about is that Jeffrey Epstein introduced Donald Trump to one of his girlfriends named Selena Middlefart. And immediately after Donald broke up with Selena Middlefart, Donald, uh, Jeffrey Epstein introduced Donald Trump to Melania Trump or um, is that, is that her name? Melania? Yeah, Melania, sure. wife? Yeah. Yep. yeah. Melania Trump was introduced to Donald Trump. That is, that is really interesting. Uh, that I, uh, that, you know, that I certainly didn't know. Um, I would, uh, so yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw back to, uh, cause yeah, we're already, we're already verging on, uh, uh, on an hour here, so I, I, I guess I want to. I have a, I have a couple thoughts, primarily about the first call, but, uh, but first I want to go back to our guest, uh, Gene. Is there, is there anything you, uh, you, you want to throw in on either of those calls? Yeah, I would say, you know, if you, I mean, if you're living in a conservative area, uh, you know, working class people are generally you know, amenable to Donald Trump. And if you live in, you know, a more liberal area in a city, the working class is more aligned with the Democratic Party. I think the fundamental problem is that the American working class has no independent politics and rather is siloed largely along cultural lines uh, into the Republican and the Democratic Party. And with that in mind, if you want to build an independent working class politics, that will inevitably require you to interact with people who come from, you know, socially conservative regions, people who, you know, uh, you know, uh, maybe re vote Republican because of cultural issues and try and persuade them. I don't think I, I, I don't I don't think that is a bad idea. I do think there are some. Uh, elements on the left that are very moralistic in the sense that, you know, they they say, well, these people deserve it. I mean, even if you think that, you can't build a working class politics without them. So, you know, whether they deserve it or not is 
Besides yeah, the, point- the most extreme example is like, uh, I mean, not that this is the left, you know, but like the, is like people on MSNBC, somebody, or no, it was Joy Behar, I think, who said that the, uh, the, uh, people in East Palestine uh, deserved it because they voted for Trump, uh, which is, which is kind of sociopathic as well. And, as I, think, yeah. and, and I think people in these regions supported uh, Trump as well, because he also went against the conservative establishment that runs their towns, that runs their cities, the chamber of commerce and those kind of people that became the vehicle to register their disapproval with establishment Republicans as well as the Democratic Party, right? So, you know, there, there's a lot of political energy and frustration. The question is about channeling it. And of course, you know, to, like I live in a predominantly conservative region. That means talking to conservative uh, uh, people. That means, you know, uh, listening to people. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they say, but, you know, treat people uh with kind of uh respect and don't be afraid to tell them when you think that they're wrong but you know don't yeah no exactly like you don't you don't have to be a kind of self-righteous asshole because nobody likes self-righteous assholes at the end of the day you know it is like the liberal the self-righteous liberal is just a kind of uh uh, a kind of uh, version of your traditional c- Christian moralist, right? It's just that it, they have a secularized set of moral values that they kind of do people down with. I think that's that's yeah. not just true of liberals, it's true of conservatives and the conservative middle class in these places who will say, well, these people are all just smoking crack and they're all just, you know, stupid and they they don't work hard and they just want to have benefits and things like that. So I think build, building an independent working class politics invariably will mean you need to interact with people who were uh, Trump supporters. And I yeah, think that absolutely. should be uncontroversial. Yeah. That's for Roy Cohen. Absolutely. I do know about Ron Cohen, but uh, yeah. Oh, I, don't yeah. Think it, I don't think it makes any difference whatsoever to, ever because people aren't supporting these people because of who they are. Nobody cares really about who they are. They're supporting the uh, image of them as a kind of political avatar. Uh, and so... Yeah, I, I mean, in some really ways, like, I guess, I guess going to the second... anything about them. Yeah. It's not... Oh, I was going to say, going yeah. to the second Go call, I I think in some ways the uh, the stuff about Roy Cohn and... Uh, you know, and about Donald Trump's, you know, many links to the Epstein network and everything is, is just kind of like a striking way of, of um, like, it's like the sort of absurdity of uh, like mega communism, which, uh, and, you know, again, mega communism is sort of the most extreme manifestation of these like pretty widespread realignment narratives that, you know, it's like, look, you know, a lot of what, somebody like Jimmy Dore pedals or people who I like more than I like him studio pedal uh, is some version of this realignment narrative that it's like, uh, Oh, these like Republican politicians, you know, like, like Trump and, you know, Josh Howley and, you know, whoever are actually uh, anti-establishment, you know, 
enemies of the military industrial complex and, and enemies of corporate America and whatever. It's like the thing that's nonsensical about that is like kind of, it's like a sort of more extreme version of the nonsensicalness of that. You know, if you think about like the QAnon thing that like Trump is trying to like secretly go after all the pedophiles when it's like, come on, I mean, the guy, you know, it's like, yeah, he, uh, you it's know, the good it's, Zah, it's the good, it's the good Zah narrative, you know, like it's, uh, it's his advisors. It's the good Zah. He loves us deep down, but there are these despicable advisors around <laughs> him who are, who are, uh, you know, misleading him. And if only he knew. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, totally right. It's like that's like yeah, it's like the same thing with Haas at the debate saying that Trump's foreign policy is his fault because he's just a mean guy, right? They have a uh, same thing with Obama supporters. Yeah, absolutely. It's the yeah, it's like oh, what you think one president can change the whole direction of America's wars? What are you a Green Lanternist? Uh, yeah, um, absolutely right. You know, so it's like yeah, the, the absurdity of thinking that the guy who was friends with Jeffrey Epstein was going to go after the pedophiles is not unlike the absurdity of thinking that. Donald Trump was an anti-war populist. Um, but yeah, I mean, going to the first call, like actually, so I want to just, Antonio in the chat uh, says something that's really important that I kind of meant to say earlier, but I didn't get a chance to, which is MAGA communism is not equal, does not equal appealing to people in the MAGA movement. I don't think there would be much objection to it if that were the case. In other words, it's like what I was starting to say to the first caller is like, when Haas will sort of try to present what he means by MAGA communism in the most sort of reasonable and unobjectionable light. He'll say like, oh, I just think that, you know, you've better luck appealing to these people. And it's like, well, if that were all it was, I think it would still be somewhat wrong, right? But it, it's not, uh, it wouldn't be nearly as objectionable. I mean, I would point out to the first caller that um, overall Biden voters in 2020 still skewed lower income on average. Right, the Trump voters, uh, which I think has a lot to do with racial voting patterns and other things, but um, also the fact that what very little organized working class exists in this country, which is not a very big chunk of it, uh, is in a deep defensive crouch. So they're obviously, you know, attached to the hip to the Democrats for that reason. Um, but, um, and there are a few other reasons too, but, you know, so it's like I, I, you know, I think oftentimes people get this twisted. It's like, no, I mean the, um, uh, like you know, if you sort of think of a typical MAGA, you know, Biden supporter as like a, you know, cappuccino swilling NPR listener, and you know, then you think about like poor people at Trump rallies or whatever. It's like I think you do have a somewhat distorted picture of the statistical realities. But that said, look, I mean, I think what you said, Gene, is exactly right. Like, um. I mean, obviously, look, most the overwhelming majority of Americans are the working class. So of course, the of course, the majority of Trump voters are going to be because the majority of everybody is right. It's like that, like Trump voters are like almost half the people who voted. So it's like, of course, there are going to be tens of millions of working class people in there. And you are absolutely going to have to talk to them and appeal to them. I just think, you know, my objection to Haas uh, is like, you know, I don't think you should I don't think you should insult their intelligence by or like lie to them right i think you're essentially lying to them if you say oh i'm a mega communist right it's like as if um as if like mega and like um you know pro-worker anti-imperialist politics were compatible it's like they're clearly not compatible right it's like they i think that and i think that's compatible with what you're saying right that it's like you should you can the way you should talk to people who are ordinary conservatives. I'm not talking about, you know, like if you ever get a chance to argue with Ben Shapiro or whatever, I mean like 
ordinary working class people who vote Republican, who have uh, culturally conservative views or whatever. I think the, you know, I think the way you should approach, I mean, that is frankly what I tried to model when I was on Rogan, right? Which is like, you should just like, yeah, try to be friendly and, and emphasize the things that you think will appeal most to them and, and, uh, and be honest about areas of genuine disagreement and, uh, you know, but just don't be a dick about it. Right. I think that that's, uh, I, I think that that's, I think that's really good advice. Right. I think that's absolutely what, what people should do. Right. I just think that it's, um, you know, again, I think it should come from a place of honesty, but look, ultimately, um, you know, if we were going to achieve even very moderate social democratic reforms in the United States, never mind like workers control the means of production, like you, we would have to very fundamentally realign American politics, right? I mean, like, like it would have to be like um, just in terms of pure numbers. I mean, if you think about the number of, of obstacles to meaningful change in the American system, I mean, I'm not sure you'd be able to achieve social democracy in America without like really possibly pretty deep constitutional reform. Um, like, like, I don't, like, I don't know that like giving the Supreme Court veto power over everything and all of the sort of obstacles that are built into federalism and everything. It's like, I think even in social democratic terms, I think those are much bigger obstacles to, to meaningful change than I think a lot of people realize. And if there was ever going to be a point as impossible as it feels to think about this right now, you know, in a period of defeats, you know, but if there was ever going to be a point where we actually did overcome those obstacles, I think it would only by be by building a majority, a movement of, of, of like a very large majority of the public. And it's like, yeah, that's going to include both people who vote, you know, like the number of the people you would have to reach out to would include tens of millions of people who voted for, you know, both Biden and Trump. Right? I mean, that's like uh there's no, and like, especially depending on the area of the country and like all that stuff, right? It's like, so it's like, that doesn't mean like throw anybody under the bus in terms of social policy, right? Um, I, in fact, I think that's stupid anyway, because I think, I think there's actually a bigger majority than in America than people realize for, you know, broadly socially liberal policies. But like in the, um, but I think it does mean that you can't sort of do culture war. You can't see everybody who, you know, listens to different media or, or votes for different candidates as, as your enemy, right? I mean, it's like even the, even the Amazon organizing victory in Staten Island, I mean, like the, uh, like a happen, like, um, you know, uh, Justine Medina, who's, who's a, uh, you know, who's like also a card carrying communist party member, I believe, uh, is, uh, who, but who was like one of the main organizers for, for the Staten Island drive, right. Said like, you know, what if the, what are the organizers who actually, like, what are the workers who signed the most people up to the union? It was this guy, Uncle Pat, who was like an Italian-American Trump supporter. And it's like, obviously, it's not Justine's politics. Obviously, it's not Chris Small's politics, you know. Uh, but, you know, but like, yeah, you're going to have to, you're going to have to reach some of those people, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's deniable at all. You know, I just think that it's, I just think you have to, um, and, you know, and like, whatever. Like, you also just can't, like, if you're just like siding with them. It's like one that's wrong in principle because you'd be throwing people under the bus, but also two, like what you're just going to alienate the even larger number of working class people who uh, who aren't who, you know who aren't conservatives or who aren't Trumpists, right? You know, so it's like uh, you know, yeah. I, I all of which is just to say I'd very strongly co-sign everything you said about sort of how to approach people 
like I don't think I don't think people realize uh, 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 I don't think people realize how uh, you know like how hard this is, how hard it would be if you wanted to like really repolarize American politics and class war lines and how many people you'd have to appeal to. And I don't, you know, I certainly don't have uh, a magical formula in my back pocket for how to do it, but I think everything you said has definitely got to be part of it. All right. Uh, We're ready to wrap up for today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Always, man. Uh, always really good to have you. Uh, uh, so yeah, people should be uh, watching uh, watching the the uh, the show on which Gene is part of the regular crew. The uh, this is Revolution, um, and uh, what a remind me. You guys go on so many nights a week. I don't I don't remember what all of them are. Yeah, we're on uh, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and whenever else Jason feels like going on. Uh, we may be having a White Guy Wednesday this week, so... White Guy Wednesday, okay, yeah. Uh, so uh, so do you get to participate in White Guy Wednesday, or, or, or is TIR policy the Kurds or PSC? I do, I do. No, okay. no, I, I participate. <laughs> I orchestrate White Guy Wednesday. We're, oh, yeah. we're using I'm just, I'm just curious. <laughs> okay, yeah, so this is an important question. So, yes, White Guy here. Uh All right. Coming, coming at you. But yeah, um, check us out on TIR. Uh, Jason Pascal, MT, me, Kuba, sometimes Vaughn, sometimes you. It's all action stations. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. We have Shawarma Kashama Sawant. Uh, this week. Do you know what day? Uh, Thursday. She'll be coming on Thursday, so uh, yeah. she'll be she'll be talking about um, she'll be talking about what she's planning to do after the Seattle City Council, and uh, we haven't told Pascal she's a trot yet, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Going to find out on air. Yeah. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Well, that all sounds good. Uh, People should check that out. Thank you again, Gene. Thank you, everybody who called in. Left is...